Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. So here we are uh, in our second week, just looking at the life of Abraham. We're sort of trying to take a, a bit of time to go through some of the stories in the Old Testament, just to spend a little more time engaging with the foundations of the Christian story. So often when we're preaching and teaching, we're spending time, of course, in the New Testament and the story of Jesus, which is beautiful and wonderful, but that story emerged from within a cultural context. It emerged from within a biblical context. And so we want to understand some of the foundational ideas uh, that God was bringing into the world through the Jewish people uh, to uh, his family, and then ultimately that family expanding the story of the goodness of God uh, out into the world. And so that's sort of the purpose of this story of Abraham, is where God comes to him and begins to say to to Abraham, hey, you're one guy, but I intend for uh, my relationship with you to be on display, not just to you, uh, but to your children and your children's children and your children's 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 children. And for uh, that to be my strategy for helping the world get to know me and begin to uh, live in a different way. And so as we look back across history, we see uh, that now there are, uh, between the Jewish community and the, and the Christian family, there are billions of people around the world who are out there uh, trying to identify with Jesus, figure out who he is, tell his story, and that we are an extension of what God started uh, with Abraham. Uh, we are a part of that uh, uh, like in the, as the image uh, shows and tries to represent here, uh, as many as the stars in the heavens out there trying to declare the glory of God here on the earth. And so that's what we're about. And so what we learned from Abraham's journey yesterday, or last week on Sunday, was uh, that there's a process sort of embedded in that story that speaks to how God changes and transforms people and helps us to grow in trust. God makes a promise. He reveals himself to us. He speaks to us. All of a sudden, we come to know him. We come to believe in him. All of a sudden, we have this gift of faith because he has shown himself uh, to us, and we know who he is. Uh, we fail to lean on that knowledge. We we fail to trust him. We fail to uh, walk in that reality that he is a God who can be leaned upon. But he still proves himself faithful, and we saw that in Abraham's story. Um uh, as God proves himself faithful, we take tiny steps further in obedience. God promises again. We end up failing and stumbling again. Uh, God continues to be faithful, and it goes on and on. And our relationship with God, our trusting God, grows and grows and grows and grows. And so uh, we just remind ourselves from last week that our faith or our trust grows not by our own strength, right? It's not an internal power that we somehow have. It's not like an ability that we have. It's not a genetic thing. It's not part of our emotional makeup. It's not our ability to just uh, inherent to ourselves have hope. And it's not some sort of mythical, mystical force that we can access out there. Faith comes as God sovereignly reveals himself and trust grows as we learn to lean on his faithfulness. So it's all about relationship with him. It's all about knowing him. It's all about his initiation and his desire to have a relationship with us and us learning that we can just lean on that. Um, and we see that there's, a, there's an interesting uh, repeated pattern in Scripture where once God does reveal himself, that that faith um, continues to be stretched, as it was in Abraham's life, and continues to be uh, tested. And we see that pattern repeating uh, throughout the Scriptures. 
uh, Adam and Eve uh, were given the test of having a tree in the garden that they weren't supposed to eat from. They were given a bad option. They were given a bad choice with the test being choose the good thing, not the bad thing. That tree didn't have to be there. They didn't have to have the opportunity to choose wrong. Uh, We see with the children of Noah um, that they had the opportunity to sort of restart the earth and reboot it and reboot population and make everything healthy and good and related to God and connected again. But here we have the first generation of of Noah, his daughter, their daughters getting their dad drunk and sleeping with them. We have this terrible brokenness that comes uh, through the story of Noah. We have Abraham and his uh, story being sort of told, you know, hey, leave the place where you are, leave your family and go to this land I will show you. Abraham doesn't even obey in the leaving. He takes Lot with him. And we see all the mayhem and chaos that ensues and all of the mistakes that he made going down to Egypt and uh, the mistakes with Sarah and the lies to protect himself and that uh, disaster that happened through there. Even though God spoke to him, he had this uh, relationship. Every time it was tested, uh, he experienced a, a failure as his faith and his uh, hope and trust in God grew. Um, Israel in the desert, um, Joshua and the judges, Saul, David, and the kings, the exile and return, and we could go on and on and on. Almost everywhere in the scripture you'll see repeated this phrase, if you will, then I will. If you do this, then I will do that. So there's something in the heart of God that uh, gives a sense of a condition around his uh, blessing, a sense of Uh, hey, there's something that I want to happen here in you that will impact how I relate to you. There's a sense of responsibility uh, in these stories. There's a sense of testing. Um, And so in Genesis 22, we see this crazy test in the story of the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac. And I want to just start with this first verse. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. So this initiation of a conversation that uh, the writer of uh, Abraham's story, which would have been Moses, of course, many years later writing it down, uh, saw this as a test. So I want to look at this word test for just a quick second. That word test is a Hebrew word that basically is used all over the place, similarly to what we use. It's It's a good translation in English. It means to try or to verify a hope or expectation. So to test something, if I was to test, you know, if a chair was going to hold me up, I would, I would sit on it. I would put some weight on it. I would lean on it. I would want it to uh, verify um, that that chair is going to hold me up. I I would test it. I would want to verify the milk when I take it out of the fridge that it has not gone bad. And I'll give it a little sniff if if the date is off. You know, we, we test things. We verify that they are going to meet with our expectations. But I want to ask this question, like this test that God gives to Abraham is a harsh test. This seems like a very difficult test, uh, an incredible challenge, right? So if God is kind, why would he make life harder by, by him introducing difficult decisions to us? What's he all about there? Like, why would he introduce this difficult choice to Abraham around the, uh, the sacrifice of his son Isaac? What's the point? It, it seems to, to us, to our minds now, looking at it as torture, right? Like, it's a torture test. Uh, it, it, it's, it's terrible. But there's, a, there's an even deeper question in there uh, for us is, why, why does God need to test us? What, what's he actually testing? God could control the outcome. 
he could make Abraham make the choice that Abraham needs to make. So he can influence the situation so that Abraham makes things happen the way God wanted them to happen. And two, God already knows the outcome. Like he knows what Abraham's going to decide. He knows what's in Abraham's heart. He knows what Abraham's all about. He made him. It says in the scriptures that God knows us. He knows our hearts. We look on the outside, but God looks in the heart. So what is the point of a sovereign God who uh, is all-powerful and all-knowing doing a test in the first place? It doesn't make sense. Um, Except that when you understand that um, the test might not be for God's own benefit, the test might be for us. And I want us to just unpack that for a minute and try to understand it. Um, a test, for, for starters, implies that the person being tested can affect the outcome, right? So if you're given a test in school, you're not given it because the teacher already sort of knows how you can perform. Uh, you're given it because you can choose to study, you can choose not to study, you can choose to do your homework, not to do your homework, you can choose to prepare good notes if it's an open book test, or you can choose not to prepare good notes or, uh, if it's an open book test. The test implies that you are the one who is affecting the outcome, that you have some choice in it. Um, and so we want to see, first of all, God might know or might be able to control an outcome, but he's actually, in giving a test, he's actually releasing some sovereignty, some control, some ability to choose to his creation. He's giving you an opportunity. He's giving Abraham here an opportunity to decide whether to go God's way or to decide not to. So we see test as a gift of choice and as a gift of opportunity. Uh, I'm going to explain that a little bit more in a moment, but I want to deal with the the idea of knowledge. Uh, So God already knows the outcome. He already knows what Abraham is going to decide. The person who doesn't know the outcome of the test is me. I don't know how I would respond to given situations. I mean, I've heard people sit around and have the conversation. So what would you do if you were on a desert island and you could choose only one book? What book would you choose to read, right? And I have to think about that. I have to process it to know what I might decide. And then if it actually ever happened, we would see what book I ended up there with, right? Uh, so it's um, uh, an action or a choice on my part. And, and I get to tell the end of this, know the end of the story, even though God already knows it. So I get to walk with God on a journey of discovery, of discovering then how he's going to respond to my choice, uh, learning about his faithfulness and his goodness. So uh, around the issue of God's power and his control and his knowledge and his sovereignty, uh, God's testing can be seen as a gift of freedom. Uh, God inviting, rather than forcing us to choose uh, to work alongside him in the world that he's made. Right, So when you see Abraham, he's wanting to raise up a family that will spread throughout the whole earth and share his glory and share his story. And he has chosen not to uh, raise up automatons. He's chosen not to raise up robots to do that. He's chosen not to broadcast it from the sky. He's chosen to use uh, people who would have to choose to tell that story, would have to choose to reflect God's glory, and who would have to choose to uh, be people uh, who would give love and honor and worship and glory back to God. 
right? And we see that uh, reflected in, um, you know, just in all of the thinking in the scriptures. It's just, it's all threaded through it. Uh, but if you look even far, as far ahead as 2 Timothy, uh, verses, or chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, um, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. So here then is there's another if then understood in the New Testament context. Um, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So this enduring testing, this enduring difficulty and trial and struggle and challenge um, is something that leads to us getting to choose, us getting to learn to reign with God, us getting to learn to lead with him, us getting to participate in his sovereign will uh, being poured out on the earth. So we get to come alongside him. So we see tests as that uh, incredible gift of him honoring us and allowing us to participate with him in his mission. Um, and so the other thing we see, of course, back to the knowledge thing, God's testing can be seen as the gift of knowledge. Uh, we gain experience with him that causes us to grow in trust. So we see that he tells us to do something. Uh, we uh, maybe decide to be faithful. We find out that it's going to work out according to his plan, according to his purpose. We may not find that out here and now. Sometimes we're going to find some of those things out on the other side of heaven, um, but on the other side of eternity, but we ultimately find out. But we see that also reflected in the New Testament, uh, right near the end of the New Testament, a little book uh, called James, uh, chapter 1. Um, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or in the NIV, uh, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Right? So uh, the, the going through the test, the growing through the challenge, uh, actually causes us to grow, actually causes us to become something more than we are. So we look at this test, and we're about to examine it a little bit more in the story of the life of Abraham. God isn't torturing Abraham here. He's not uh, sort of saying, I want to see how Abraham reacts to that one. And like he's playing with Abraham as some kind of lab rat. He loves Abraham, and he loves Isaac, and he loves his mission. And he's growing Abraham uh, into a person who can participate with him uh, knowingly in his mission on the earth. So the purpose of testing is to invite God's people into shared leadership with him and to train us to trust and obey him when we join in his mission. That's what testing is intended to complete in us. So test is training for promotion into a fuller partnership with God. It's a training into uh, a fuller um, working with him, a fuller um, participating, a fuller uh, activity in his mission to bring his love and light and glory uh, to the earth. So that's what's happening in the story of Abraham. That's what's happening when we're tested. Uh, just a, a little side note on that is we can't see every difficulty as testing. Uh, sometimes our difficulties are, it's just, it's just too simple of you saying everything bad that happens to you is a test from God. Um, God will reveal those things to you, those things that are tests, those things that are challenges. Um, but sometimes there's just 
suffering. Sometimes there's suffering at our own hands. Sometimes there's suffering because of our own sin. Sometimes the consequences of our own actions and we have to grieve and we have to deal with it and we have to repent and we have to wrestle those things down. But sometimes uh, struggles and trials and challenges come because the Lord is wanting to grow us. And that's can be seen as love. And I think um, without getting into a whole nother case here, it can be seen as something that is way better than the alternative of what our lives would be if we didn't allow that the idea that God can test us and grow us. So let's just leave that concept of testing aside. I just think it's a really important thing for us to, to work through. Um, so uh, verse two, okay, so we're in verse two. Um, so God said, he said, take your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go into the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So now we're faced with another uh, incredibly uh, challenging question. Uh, why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? And why would Abraham say Yes. So what's the, the basic question here is what's the deal with sacrifice? Like what is the deal with sacrifice? Why is that a thing? Now, now those of us who've grown up in the Christian community for a long time have sort of an inherent acceptance of this idea. We kind of uh, get it because we've been steeped in it and we've gone to Sunday school and it kind of just sort of makes sense to us and we just kind of accept it. But if you're uh, an unchurched person, you're an unbeliever who's looking in on this and you're looking at God who is asking Abraham to sacrifice his son or you're asking anybody to take a goat or a sheep or something that they have and kill it and sacrifice it so that uh, they're relationship with God can somehow be better to people in our culture in our time that's just gobbledygook it's just it's just nonsense it doesn't make uh, any rational sense at all so what is the deal with sacrifice I want to just say like to Abraham just like uh, for those of us who grew up in the church that idea of sacrifice wouldn't have been a surprise at all because it would have been something that he would have understood uh, from the the pagan surroundings of his culture he would have understood that uh, people were always trying to get uh, the gods to make it rain or they were always trying to get the sun to shine or to get storms to stop and things like that for Abraham he had a different understanding a little bit in the sense that he knew that there was a personal God to whom he was interacting. Uh, we see earlier in Abraham's story uh, in Genesis 13 um, that he has, in Genesis 15, that he's been in different places and built altars towards the Lord. So this isn't the first time God has asked him uh, to sacrifice. So it's something that he understands. Um, but what just for him to, for us to understand what sacrifice was about, to just understand the symbol and the power of what it meant to him to take um, some rocks and pile them up, um, and to take an animal that he uh, had nurtured and raised and to kill it and to collect some wood and to burn it. What did those uh, actions mean? I didn't really mention the, the, the building of the altar, but the building of the altar uh, in, a, in sort of a visceral psychological way causes a person to uh, make something that is going to stand there as memory. So there's the importance of memory in sacrifice. Uh, death, though, is to atone, and we're going to talk about atonement uh, in a moment. That's the, that's the crazy one to understand. Uh, blood to cleanse, um, that they would have understood, like, psychologically at that time, I as a person, I have hurt people, I have killed people, I have wounded people, I have blood on my hands, and now I'm standing before God acknowledging that I have blood in my hands uh, from what I've done, and I'm going to have to climb back down the mountain, and I'm going to have to wash my hands, I'm going to have to trust that God washes and cleanses me. And of course, smoke, uh, just a psychological 
psychological, powerful uh, symbol that says, I'm sending something up to God. I'm trying to reach to him. I'm trying to communicate something to him. I'm trying to get something to him. So at a very sort of basic um, psychological level, uh, that's what uh, the offering of a sacrifice in that time, in that cultural context, in that historical place, is what that was doing. The bigger question for us is, how is that relevant to our relationship with God and who we know uh, God to be uh, from from the Old Testament? What is, and I'm going to leave the other ones uh, for now and just talk about the concept of atonement, but what is the, the value or the power or the purpose uh, of atonement? Why is that a thing? And what I want to say about it is that atonement is the place where love and justice meet. So you have to assume we, well, well, one, we know that in that ancient culture, and we know that by the nature of who God is, like God being the creator of the universe, who made everything, who created it, who designed it, who spoke it into existence, uh, the ancient people, just as, as, as we who are theists believe, that if God was able to create creation, uh, it is big enough, or he is big enough, that he has authority over that thing which he's created. So we have a beginning assumption that God is a God of justice, and that he has a right to do with his creation whatever he wants to do, that he has a right to set the rules for creation, uh, to decide that these are the ways I want you to behave, and you ought to behave that way. And you ought to behave that way towards one another as well. So we understand the foundation of a moral law comes from the idea that there's a creator God who um, created the universe and just decided uh, to make it that way. So we understand him to be um, a God of justice. In some ways, that's easy. In some ways, that's actually even easier in our current culture uh, as we grow in a passion for understanding justice at a social level, justice at an economic level, justice uh, at a corporate level, all of those sort of uh, things. We're, we're growing in our passion for justice as a society and a culture now. So we understand that God has the right to say that this is the way things ought to be. What isn't uh, evident uh, in uh, the understanding of creation and the understanding of, you know, God as a creator God, it isn't necessary at all for him to be loving. It isn't necessary at all for him to make a way for us to have relationship with him. It is absolutely within his rights to judge us, to uh, fry us with a magnifying glass like ants on a hill, for him to smite us, for him to uh, kill us, just like any child has uh, the right to take apart a Lego set that he's made. He has that right to do it. What's amazing to us and what's astounding to us and what is, is absolutely unbelievable is the idea that this God, our God, Yahweh, has made a way for us to atone for those things that offend him and to make a way for us to have relationship with him. 
And so in the Old Testament context, uh, and in his relationship with Abraham, and in the unfolding uh, story of the of the people and the sacrificial system as it's outlined uh, in, uh, you know, the Pentateuch, we see the five books of the the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, we see God revealing uh, in His love a way for people to make up for their their sins. So if you want to understand what it means for uh, us to bring love and justice uh, together, uh, bring it into a a current context or a current situation, um, imagine that uh, your child um, was murdered. Imagine that your child was killed um, maybe by a drunk driver or maybe by somebody who uh, took your child and abducted them and killed them. Now, um, you would need to bring the love and justice of God together somehow in that horrible situation. Uh, we would say theologically that we would believe that God could forgive that person who is the murderer. And I visited in prisons and I've spoken to murderers uh, who have become Christians and who have come become believers and who have accepted uh, the love and the grace of God. So we know that love uh, can come uh, to people who are broken, to people who are wounded, to people who have uh, caused uh, great pain in the world. Um, but there's that thing inside of us that would look at that murderer and say that there still has to be justice done somehow for the death of my child. God can forgive that person, have relationship with him, but what about what was taken from me? What about this life that was taken from me? God forgives that person. I can't imagine that God would they look at the murder of my child and say, yeah, that's all good. It's all good. I just, I'm just going to leave that behind. I'm just, I'm just not going to worry about it. I mean, I just love this guy so much. Your daughter's gone, but I, I really love this murderer guy. And I'm just going to, uh, to let it go. I'm just going to let it go. That wouldn't be a just God. That wouldn't be a God who is fair. Maybe fair is a better word to help us. A fair God would see that justice is done for the murder of your child. And at the same time, uh, pouring out love and grace on the one who killed her. How do you bring those things together? And so we see in atonement that God creates a way uh, for humans to fix the debt that we owe. In the case of the murderer, in our understanding from a New Testament perspective, uh, that murderer can't pay for the death of your child, but that murderer uh, can receive grace because Jesus himself has paid for the death of your child. And we look back to the cross and we understand that Jesus was a sacrifice once and for all, for all of the sins of humanity. And we know that he was a worthy sacrifice. And so justice is done for your daughter. It's visited upon Jesus and he accepts the punishment the full weight of the punishment that is due for the death of your child is visited on him. He graciously takes it. And so that's sort of we, how we understand grace to work. But in the context of Moses, uh, a sheep or a goat or rams, all through the story of Moses to pay for the mistakes he made, the mistakes with Sarah, the mistakes he made with um, Lot, the mistakes he made in, in various places in Egypt, um, God has made a way for Abraham to reconnect and to pay and to acknowledge his guilt and to acknowledge his sin.
So from Abraham's perspective, it isn't the least bit surprising that God asks for a sacrifice. God's meeting Abraham in love and justice there, right? So that concept of sacrifice, that need to pay the debt for our sins. And, and, and you know, we put, it, we put this all on an imaginary murderer, but put it, all on, put it on yourself for a moment. Uh, your life and my life, my life has hurt other people. My life has uh, taken um, life from other people. Uh, if you've told a lie... Um, and and taking advantage of somebody, you've stolen life from them. Can you give it back? Uh, if you've, uh, you know, I mean, even even looking at the the little things, all of us Nike wearing people uh, who wear our nice little Nike shoes um, and and don't realize that, you know, there are little children who work for, you know, twelve fourteen hours a day working their fingers to the bone to sew your Nikes for you. Uh, we owe probably that child who made our Nikes more than the few cents that they got paid for it. So we owe uh, debts and we owe vast debts out there. And so how do we atone for those things? How do we pay for them? God doesn't just say, Hey, what's all good. I I love you. I don't really care about that other person's suffering. uh, So I'm just going to forgive you. There has to be a way for that to be squared. If he is both loving and just, And so that's what we're seeing happen here. The surprising part of this story, the surprising part of the Abraham story, isn't that he's asked to offer a sacrifice. Of course, it's surprising that he's offered to, he's asked to offer his son, Isaac, his son that was promised to him. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the surprising part of the story is that God lets Abraham make a sacrifice that didn't cost him anything. So here we have uh, an example of a level of grace and a level of love, and a level of atonement and justice happening that, uh, that is, is absolutely astounding in the ancient world in which this story is placed. The fact that God provides the lamb for the sacrifice is unbelievable. It's, it's incredible. We're going to unpack that for a moment because uh, what we see in the story is not just uh, this story. Uh, we see in the story of, of Abraham an unfolding of a, a greater story that's about to happen. Because you and I know that in the end, even the sacrifice of a lamb, the sacrifice of ram, can't possibly pay uh, for the sins that we've committed. How is this done on a cosmic level? How is this done on the level of uh, the hurts that I have caused in the world that I don't even know hardly that I've caused, that I've caused just by my brokenness? How does this work? And here we have introduced the story of how sin is dealt with, how atonement happens on a cosmic scale. And it's, and it's incredible what we see in the text and the early church fathers. This isn't just, this isn't me. This isn't just Bible project uh, who's done work on this. This isn't just, you know, commentators in the last couple of hundred years, like early church fathers, uh, Irenaeus and others, like looked back at the story of Abraham and said, this is an incredible uh, foreshadowing, an incredible prophetic enacting of what happened with Christ on the cross thousands of years uh, before uh, Jesus was born. So walking through the story of Abraham, take your son, your only son, that phrase in verse two, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. We see Abraham giving and offering up his only son. We see God who is offered up his only son. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him. Again, in verse 2, the land of Moriah, the temple, is the is built on the mountain of Moriah, the place where sacrifice happened for the Jews for thousands of years. The hills around Jerusalem, the hill on around Jerusalem on which Jesus um, was sacrificed on a cross, happened on Mount Moriah. In the story of Abraham, God called Abraham to go to the place where his son would ultimately be sacrificed for the sins of the world. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey. Uh, they went to the place of which God had told him on the third day. And early church writers look back to this and say, this journey of three days to Moriah is Jesus' journey of three years uh, going uh, through his life and serving uh, people and living in the land, the ministry of Jesus for three years ultimately culminating in uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And that's Irenaeus writing about that and making a connection there. So uh, I think, honestly, I think Irenaeus is making a little stretch with this one. <laughs> three days, three years, but I'm not going to argue with Irenaeus, right? And Abraham uh, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac as the cross was laid on Jesus' back as he walked to Calvary. Uh, this verse in verse 8, God himself will provide a lamb. We, we see Irenaeus again pointing us back to uh, the moment when Jesus was, uh, was about to be baptized, coming, uh, and John uh, baptizing people in the desert and saying, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world this uh, connection of Jesus with this idea of the sacrificial lamb. Uh, we see in verse 13, uh, this phrase, behind him was a ram uh, caught in a thicket by his horns. And here we see Jesus caught in a thicket. His head uh, surrounded by thorns. The lamb caught in the thicket for us, for your sins, and for mine. And in verse 13, it also says, And Abraham went up, and he took the ram and offered it on Mount Moriah. And here we have the father offering his son for us. In the story of Abraham, we see a man in a moment in history, uh, following obediently this path that God had him on, ultimately offering a sacrifice, ultimately Abraham's life, uh, continuing on and presumably needing more sacrifice and more sin and more struggle as the story of Abraham goes on and the story of the journey of the people of Israel goes on. But what it points us to is not just the sacrifice in the moment, not just the sacrifice in that moment of history, not just the need for Abraham's atonement, 
what the need for atonement uh, for every human on the planet who has ever lived. And we see uh, God's own son being that sacrifice of atonement for you and that sacrifice of atonement for me. And the passage we read in, in um, Genesis ends like this. It says, so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And we say, this day, thousands of years later, on the mount of the Lord, on a hill called Calvary, uh, it was provided for us. Atonement was made for me. Atonement was made for you. Atonement was made so that love and justice uh, could meet. And the question that stands uh, simply for us, uh, maybe the place where we started in this message is, will we receive that revelation of the grace and the mercy of God? Will we receive that sacrifice for us? And if you're here and if you're uh, paying attention to the stream and maybe you've never uh, before um, engaged with the idea that God knows you, that God loves you, that God wants a relationship with you, but that something needs to happen to atone for your sin and for your mistakes so that you could have that relationship with him. Um, this might be your moment to say, I accept that sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for my sins. I accept uh, that I have sinned. I accept that I need you. I accept that I don't have uh, the power to sacrifice enough to pay for what I've done. I accept that I don't have the ability uh, to make this right. So I have to accept the sacrifice that you have done for me. I have to accept the grace that you've poured out for me and humbly receive it. And if you're in that place uh, this morning, I just want to encourage you to just pray quietly and simply and say, Lord Jesus, I accept the gift of salvation offered for me and I give my life to you. And then we go forward to lean on that relationship, to lean on that faith, to be people who would participate uh, with God in his mission to share the story of his love and his grace and his way of atoning uh, for our sins uh, with the world that needs atonement and needs it so desperately. That's our mission. That's our challenge to share this incredible story with the world. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.